as we get into the word today, uh, I wanted to highlight the fact that, that God the Father has sent his son Jesus Christ. He's given us his Holy Spirit, but it's, it's not for a, a two-dimensional kind of flat kind of salvation. And we've talked about this for a number of weeks now, that God has saved us, but not just in order to, to take us out of the, you know, the, the fiery furnace and, and give us the life that we want here and now, or, or not, not just to take us from, from this, uh, this doom that we are, that, that's impending in our life in order that we might just go to heaven. He doesn't just beam us up in a moment, but he has a purpose for our life. And we talked about how this, this multifaceted salvation has, has this aspect of being saved in order that we might serve, that we might glorify God through our service. We also talked about how God saves us in order that we might sacrifice. And that, that goes counter to, to most ideas of, of God's blessing, but God blesses us so that we can be radical in our generosity, radical in our sacrifice, radical in, in the way that we give. And last week I talked about, or, or a week, week before, I don't remember when it was. When was it? A week before last. Yes, because I had COVID. I had COVID. Thanks for praying. Uh, I don't anymore. Um, uh, but I talked about how we are saved to sing, that we are called to worship God. And that worship doesn't mean we wait until we get to heaven and, and you know, they, they give us our wings and our harp and we sit on a, some sort of cloud and we sing songs that really have no emotional value to us, but there's a real sense that our lives are intended to reflect the glory of God. And I loved how we were talking about God being worthy of the glory. We were singing, you know, you're the alpha and omega. And if you don't have a frame of reference for that, in, in the Greek alphabet, alpha is A and, and omega is the equivalent of Z. It's the end. You are the beginning. You are the end. We worship you, our God, our Lord. You are worthy to be praised. Right? Those are the words. He is worthy to be praised. And that word praise means that he is worthy to receive our uh, affirmation and acclamation and, and our, our words that, that show that we are for and we appreciate and we lift him up. We express his worth. We, we sometimes don't connect the dots there, but when we go and we watch football or we go and we we golf or we go and we, we see someone succeed, there's a moment of success and excitement and we express that and that is, that's a small kind of praise and worship. We are made to sing, we are saved to sing and today my prayer is that we will see from scripture that God has saved us not only to serve, not only to sacrifice, not only to sing, but that we might be able to shine brightly in a, in a dark world, that we have been made to shine. So we're going to read out of Matthew chapter Five. This is on the tail end of the Sermon of the Mount on the Mount. It is, it's right after the Beatitudes, actually. And we're going to read and hear Jesus speak to us about what it looks like for us to be saved in order that we might shine. So if you'll stand with me together, we will read the Word of God together. This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who 
who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the Father of lights and the one who speaks in the beginning saying, let there be light and light exists. Jesus, you are the true light of the world who illuminates the darkness and draws us to yourself. And Holy Spirit, you are here illuminating our hearts so that we might see wonderful truths in this passage, so that we might appreciate what you have written in this word, that we might participate in this light. God, I thank you that we've been given the opportunity to to participate in what you are doing in the world to light the darkness. And you've given us the responsibility to shine as Christ shines in us. Father, I pray that we would see clearly that if we've called you Lord and Savior, if we've called Jesus our Lord and Savior, then our lives ought to be filled with the kind of, of, of works and acts and commitments that evidence your goodness, that evidence the fact that, God, you are at work in our lives. God, I pray that you would show our relatives, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our enemies, that, God, you are awesome and worthy of our praise. Cause your light to shine in us so that we might illuminate this world, that they might see our good deeds and glorify your name. We pray these things in, in your name, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. In this short passage, Jesus gives us what I see as three different things, and they, they flow from one to the other. He gives us our identity. Now, this is not the only aspect of our identity. It's, it's one facet of who we are. But he gives us our identity, and when he gives us our identity, that very naturally flows into our purpose, right? If you're a hammer, you're a hammer, and you know what hammers do? They hammer nails. So that's the identity and purpose. And they're so closely related that you don't even necessarily think about that distinction. And he gives us our identity, our purpose, and then ultimately our responsibility, how we ought to live. So I want to look at this and consider who we are, who God has called us to be, our identity. What, what we're called to do in response to that identity, our purpose. And then what our responsibility is how we are to live in response to this new identity. Uh, so what does Jesus, thank you, thank you so much, sir. Uh, what does Jesus say we are? Look at verse 14, very simply. He says, you are the light of the world. Um, moms and dads, if you have kids, there's a guy named Randall Goodgame. Uh, and he is a musician, he's out of Tennessee, he's, he does amazing things. Uh, there's a show that he's put together called Slugs and Bugs, but he, he puts together songs that, uh, that are scripture. And every time I read this, I hear his song, you are the light, the light of the world. You should listen to him singing, it's much better. Um, but if you want to get your kids involved in, in memorizing scripture, Randall, good game, look him up. Uh, he says, the Lord says, you are the light of the world. And there's some things that in this simple statement that we can draw out. We can't really tell because in English, when we talk about you and we use a subject, you have to, you have to say you. You can't just say, are the light of the world. Uh, the, 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 the subject has to be included in English. However, in, in the original language, that's not always the case. But what's interesting here is that Jesus does emphatically say, you are the light of the world. 
And if we were to back up, we would see that Jesus has seen the crowd around him, and he went up on the mountain, it says in verse 1 of chapter 5, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So it's likely that the crowd was around, but, but probably he was referring and speaking directly to his disciples. And so here he looks at his disciples, and he says, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. It's worth noting that there is a light in the world, not multiple lights, not multiple possible ways to find illumination, but there's one light, and he says, you are that light. It's also worth knowing that the fact that we're the light of the world means that the world is what? It's a dark place. I mean, if you, if you read the news, if you pay attention to anything, if you're driving around in October, you can see that it's a dark place. Um, it is a dark place to live. And in fact, the Bible really presents two kingdoms, two worlds, if we were to say it. There's, there's the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. These are all, all synonymous for the, the rulership and the reign of God, the domain of God's rule on earth as a result of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's, there's that kingdom that moves forward. And in contrast to that kingdom, there's what Colossians is, calls the domain of darkness. There's no neutral territory. There's no DMZ. You're either in the kingdom of heaven because you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as your king, as your ruler, and now you have been brought in as a citizen of heaven, or there's the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom that we've all been born into, the kingdom that we fall into by default because of our first father and mother, Adam and Eve. We are in a dark world. And in this world, there is only one source of light. Now, I know that there's some Bible scholars in this, in this room, and so you might be thinking to yourself, you know, I feel like I've heard Jesus talk about being the light of the world. Or perhaps you've heard, I, I feel like there's a place where the Bible says that, that Jesus is that light. And it does say that in John chapter 8. If you were to go there, you don't have to, but in John chapter 8, Jesus is ministering and he says, Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of what? Life. He says, I am the light of the world. And if we were reading through Matthew sequentially, which I encourage you, whenever you're reading the Bible or whenever you listen to a sermon, you should read what comes before and what comes after just to hear and see if that pastor has, has communicated really what the context is saying. In chapter 4 of Matthew, it says in verse 16, I'll go to verse 12. Now, when he had heard that John had been arrested, that's talking about Jesus, Jesus withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went to live in Capernaum by the sea uh, in a territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. He's just, he's gone to, to go Capernaum. That's the main point. So that what might be spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So he goes to Capernaum in order to fulfill this prophecy. So listen to the prophecy. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen what? A great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. So Jesus says, or rather Matthew says that Jesus goes to this area in order to fulfill this prophecy that says that this area is going to receive a light. So Matthew himself is saying, Jesus is the light. 
So what do we have here? Is this a contradiction? Is Jesus contradicting what he says in John? Is John contradicting Matthew? What's going on here? This is a worthwhile question to ask. And whenever you come across a scripture that seems to contradict other scriptures, that's a point at which God invites you into a conversation. Right? We believe that this word is coherent and consistent. That what is said in Genesis is not going to actually contradict what is said in Revelation. And what I mean by that is, is God is not going to say at the beginning of the Bible, uh, one plus one is two, and then at the end of the Bible say, actually guys, one plus one is three. What he says at the beginning is going to be consistent with what he says in the middle and in the end. And so we start with that presupposition. We start with that foundational understanding, and then we have to adjust our understanding to what he's saying. So we see in John and we see in Matthew chapter 4 that, that Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And here he's saying, he's saying, no guys, you are the light of the world. So what is the point? Well, I, I read a couple commentaries that, that make this, this illustration really helpful. Um, how many of you guys stared at the sun as a child? Be honest. Okay, yeah, so some more hands went up. Not for too long. I have contacts in. I don't know. That might be why. Um, I definitely did, and, and I remember thinking, like, this is hurting, I should stop, and then I did, but it was just one of those things that, you know, kids are like, oh, that looks sharp, is it sharp? Oh, yes, it's sharp, you know, that looks bright, is it bright? Yes, it's bright, and, and we, we stare at the sun, but it, it causes damage, it's too much to look at, but then you look at the moon, right, a couple nights ago, we had the full moon, and it was kind of cool to look at. I mean, you got the guy, he's in the cheese, and it's fun to look at. You got a clear sky. What's interesting about the moon is that it has no inherent light. There's nothing intrinsically light about it. And in fact, all that we're seeing is a reflection of the sun's light on the moon. You are the light, the light of the world. Because as we gaze upon Jesus, as we look at Jesus, as we behold Jesus, and as Jesus dwells in our heart by the Holy Spirit, that light now begins to reflect in your life. So we see that, that Matthew is not contradicting. He's giving us a picture of what it looks like to be Christians, Christ people. We're the source of light because Christ is in us. As disciples, we reflect this light as he shines on us. And so our identity is that we are light in the world. So if we're light and to be uh, sources of light whose example and source is Jesus, what is our purpose? You know, a hammer's a hammer, it hammers nails, right? What it is, what it does. What are we? We are lights. Very simply, he goes on and explains our purpose. Look at verses, or the rest of 14 and 15. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. It's a very simple, simple expression, but I just want you to kind of take a moment and think about what he's saying. We're walking up a hill. I live in Winchester. There are a lot of hills. There, there are gentle mountains. And there's actually one that's, uh, as, you're, as you're going east, up a hill in Clark County, you see this cool house that just kind of, I know it's pretty big, maybe, I don't know. It, it looks like a mansion, the fact that I can see it from the top of the mountain. And it just kind of sits at the top of the hill. And, and if the lights were on at night, you'd be able to see it even though you were far away. He speaks of this hill that's, Rather, this, this house and this city, this, this group of houses that are on a hill. And why would you build houses on a hill except that they might be able to be seen from far away? So that travelers would come up and they say, okay, there it is. There's the hill. There's the city that we're going towards. 
And he says very simply, a city set on a hill, a city that has been built on a hill, it's not intended to be hidden. Its intention is actually to be seen, to be attractive, to draw people to himself. He says, in the darkness of light, this, this city sits as a beacon as it was intended. In the same way, you and I, our lives are intended to be a beacon. That's not a secondary thought. The fact that we've been Given the light of Christ is not just so that we might then experience God's love and be beamed up, like I said. It's so that we can express something to the world, so that we can change our environment and light up what's going on in the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Then he goes, and in case there's any confusion, he says, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. Imagine this dynamic. Okay, so, so he's probably talking about a single, um, a single room house, right? It's just one room. There's a light and a lampstand. And you're, and you're in there with some people, and it's getting dark. And so you go ahead and you light the lamp and you put it on the lampstand. And you go and talk to your friends, and all of a sudden the lights go out. Well, that's weird. And you go and light the lamp again, and you start talking to your friends. And you look over, and there's a guy, and he's got... He's got some sort of cover, and he's about to put it on, and you're like, what are you doing, Bill? Because it's Bill. Um, uh, if you're here, Bill, I'm not talking about you. I just used the name Bill. He's always the bad guy. I'm sorry. You're not the bad guy. But you'd look at this guy and say, what are you doing, man? It's dark. Why do you keep turning the lights off? I, I, you know, when you have a bunch of kids, we have a basement, and, and there are a bunch of kids sometimes who will come and play in the basement. And there's always that kid who wants to, turn, you know, we're having a good time, we're having a good time, and then all of a sudden there's crying and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, and you go downstairs and the lights are off, and you're like, what is going on? I'm like, well, we're having fun, and then Billy turned off the lights, and then I ran into the foosball table. Like, okay. Right? It's silly because lights are intended to bring, what, light, illumination, clarity, vision, ability to see and navigate. Jesus is saying, guys, you are the light of the world. Why would you try and hide? Why would you try and not allow that light to express itself? We know intuitively that light is intended to illuminate, but what exactly, what does that mean for us, right? So we see that we are in Christ. Our identity is that we are the light of the world. Our purpose is is to illuminate, and if we were to go back and, and leave at this point, I think you'd have some great talking points over lunch, you're like, yeah, brother, let's illuminate the world. Yeah, I, let's, let's light up the world. Yeah, how, how do we do that? I don't know. Right? The, what does that even mean? What does it mean to illuminate the world, to light up the world? Because what he doesn't mean is to go turn on a bunch of lights. It, he doesn't mean that we need to buy some lamps and, and you know, provide some extra lighting on the road. Although countryside needs that. No, there's something that God is calling us to. What's the responsibility? Let's look at verse 16. He says, you know, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill, a lamp on a lampstand. In the same way that these things illuminate the world, let your light shine before others. And again, we're still faced with, okay, what do you mean, Jesus? What, What do you mean? He says, so that they may see your what? Good works. And give, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's interesting. He doesn't say, let your light shine so people can see your light. He says, let your light shine so people may see your what? Good works. So, 
This is the point. If Jesus is the ultimate source of light and we're reflecting that light, then like a lampstand and like a city on the hill, we should let the light of our good works shine in the world in such a way that God can be glorified. So what are these good works, right? This is the question you should be asking yourself. If you want to take the Bible and apply it to your life, you don't want to just read it and say, you know what, yes, you're right, good, do good works. And then you walk away and you're like, well, what does that actually mean on Monday, on Tuesday when you're at work? Is there a way for your light to shine at school, at your your class, while you're driving? What does it look like for your light to shine? What does it look like to have, quote unquote, good works? Um, I think there are four things that we can speak of when we talk about these good works, these good deeds. Um, first of all, these, are, these good works, what are they? They are things that are done by you. That sounds elementary, but if you're not doing them, they're not your good works. If you're not doing them, you're not shining the light. There's something about your life If I could go to each and every one of you and look you in the eyes, there's something about your life that God wants to use to illuminate the world around you. God wants to use your life in the same way that the city on the hill attracts people to it, to attract people to the light of Christ in you. So one thing is, is these are deeds that are done by you. Second of all, these are visible deeds, right? These aren't just deeds that are done in in secret. That's fine. There are good things that you ought to do. And in fact, Jesus is going to go on and he's actually going to condemn the Pharisees because they only do quote-unquote good deeds in order to be seen. And and we've all been around Christians like that. We've been around people like that where it's like, well, I'm going to read my Bible and pray now. You're like, all right, I'm going to go ahead and eat lunch. And, and, And that's... It's, it's good to read your Bible. It's good to pray. It's bad to do such in order to receive glory. These are deeds that are done in public, but, they're, but as we see, they're, they're deeds that are done by us in public for God's glory. He says that we want to let our light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to... It's, it's happening, guys. <laughs> let's, let's light the world. No, okay. Um, um, there we go. These are good works that we do, that we do in the presence of others or where others can see and perceive what we're doing. And then thirdly, they're, they're done for the glory of God. Um, I, I mixed them up. They're done for the glory of God and not yourself. And then finally, these are, these are deeds that are done in the distinction to the world's deeds. Right? If you were doing the types of things that the world can do, you would be blending in with the dark. And this, this part was challenging for me because as I thought about good works, I was thinking to myself, well, you know, you can be nice. You know, people in the world can be nice, though. You can give money to charity. Well, people in the world can give money to charity. What makes this distinctly Christian? What makes this, this uniquely the result of your relationship with God? And and. What I would suggest to you is that there is a way to do good deeds that, that reflects the fact that Jesus is the source. Let me give you an example. Uh, there's a book, there's a number of books by this guy. Tim Keller, he's a pastor out of New York. You may or may not know of him. He's got a book called Forgive. 
Um, and in the book, he, he talks about, you know, why that's important and how we do it. Um, full disclosure, I have not read the book. However, I did listen to him talk about the book. And what was interesting is he, he distinguishes between the way the world forgives and, and the way Christ calls us to forgive. And there are two models that he sees in the world of, quote-unquote, forgiveness. The first he called a therapeutic model, where forgiveness isn't so much about the, the person who has uh, offended you and kind of creating some sort of reconciliatory moment as much as it's about relieving the stress that is caused by the offense. And so forgiveness really becomes this therapeutic mean thing of like letting go of your anger. But there's no sort of real uh, rejoining of that relationship. There's no coming back and saying, okay, here's what was broken. Let's see how we can bring it back together. It's just, I'm going to let go of my anger. I'm going to let go of my anger. It's all about me. It's all about my, my desires. It's all about my needs. And, and I need not to be held down by this forgiveness. There's that therapeutic model. He has this other model, which you may or may not be more familiar with, depending upon your life, where forgiveness is something that flows once it's been earned. Right? I will forgive you so long as you grovel and you express deep uh, contrition and, and maybe, you know, I, I put you in the doghouse for a little while and um, basically we want to inflict the same kind of emotional distress that the original offense has caused us. And, and that is called forgiveness when really it's payback, right? It's vengeance. Let's just be honest. It's just a quiet version of vengeance. So we have these two models in the world of, of quote-unquote forgiveness, one of, of not really even dealing with the issue and one of dealing with the issue, but, but there's no real sense that, that forgiveness has been given. It's a transactional thing, right? You've done something, you've cost me something, now you're in debt, now you're going to have to pay me back. Contrary to both of these approaches, the forgiveness that God calls us to, that Jesus calls to us, it shines a light in a bitter and dark world. And if you've ever been forgiven in this manner, you know it to be true. This is, what, this is what makes Christians different because if we're honest about our salvation, then we have been forgiven like this. When Jesus forgives us, he doesn't just say, you know, I'm letting go of my anger and not really dealing with the issue at hand. He, he deals with the issue of sin. He deals with the issue of our brokenness. He deals with the issue of justice. The other side of this therapeutic thing is that, that justice really doesn't happen. right? The side over here where it's like, you're going you're gonna to get what you deserve, it's, it's, it's just. And the side over here, it, it, it's, you could kind of call it love, but it's, it's not just. But, but in, in Christian forgiveness, as God forgives us through Christ, he does so at the cost of his son, Jesus Christ. Someone pays the price, but it isn't me. And so because of that, when we forgive in this manner, when we're able to look at our friend, at our spouse, at our coworker, at a parent, and say, I forgive you. What you did was wrong, but I don't hold it against you. I'm not bringing it up in my own mind. I'm not bringing it up with other people. Another helpful thing that Tim Keller talks about is, in case, as we're talking about forgiveness, what does forgiveness look like? Sometimes it's kind of hard to put your arms around. He says, forgiveness looks like this. You stop bringing it up with the person. You stop bringing it up with yourself. And you stop bringing it up with other people. That's what, that's what forgiveness looks like. And we're not talking about 
breaking the law and the civil stuff, that's separate from this relational piece. Please don't hear that. But understand that, that when we offer forgiveness from a Christian perspective, we're, we're saying that what was done was wrong, and yet, because of what Christ has done, I'm able to forgive. And you know what that is? That's a spark in dark. That's a spark in the dark. That's light that shines in the darkness. Another example in Matthew chapter 9, not Matthew, sorry, John chapter 9, there's this story of a, of a guy who was born blind. And, and he has this felt need. He, he's, he wants to be able to see. Uh, Jesus meets him and, and he, he is blind and he's begging. And Jesus heals the man. And as a result of Jesus addressing the felt need of this man, we see in verse 38 of chapter 9, he said, Lord, I believe, in other words, I believe in in Jesus Christ because of what he's done, and and he worships Jesus. And I wanted to highlight this because the man came into the conversation with a felt need uh, of, of being blind, and hey, that'd be great if I could see. Jesus addresses that felt need, granted in a, in a miraculous way, but, but it doesn't just stop there. Because of the, the miraculous meeting of that felt need, because of this good deed that he does, God is glorified. And while we believe in signs and wonders and miracles in this, in this church, so pray for the, for the blind, but what, my personal experience is that's not always the thing that happens every day. However, the good deeds that you do to meet the felt needs of the people around you can still testify to God's glory and his goodness. You might not necessarily pray this week to heal a blind person, but you can find the felt needs of those around you and seek to share Jesus in word and in deed. So this is what we've got. We've got our identity, light of the world, our purpose to illuminate the darkness, and our responsibility to bring glory to God. This is a high calling. It's a high calling to live your life in such a way that people are drawn to God himself. And if you're honest, your neighbor probably struggles with this. Not you. Um, you might be thinking to yourself, if I'm, I'm lucky if, if, if people think anything positive about me, let alone consider my life as something that, that propels them to God. Like maybe, maybe you look at your life and you say, ah, good deeds, I'm just trying to, Keep all the wheels on this car, right, from falling off. I made it to church, and I, 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 I didn't say nasty things to the people around me in the car, right? That, that was my good deed, was just kind of keeping it together. How do we get from where we are to where this passage is calling us to be? How do we get from where we are, from where this passage is calling to be? Well, we look at Exodus, Right? That's what you do whenever you have problems, right? You look at Exodus. Or maybe Leviticus sometimes. In Exodus chapter 34, verses 33 through um, 34, Jesus, or not be Jesus, Moses goes and uh, he goes up to the mountain to talk to God. And he does this, it seems, fairly regularly. Um, and it says in verse 29, I'll start there. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets, the testimony, right, the Ten Commandments, 
the Bible. He's just walking down with, hey, this newly printed Bible. Uh, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking to God. How weird would that be? If you're just walking down, hey, you doing? how are you doing, man? And, and how are you guys? And everyone's like, ah! And you're like, what? What's going on? Is something behind me? And he's, he's glowing. He's a glow worm. I mean, and not, not the cool one that you give to a baby that, you know, sings a song and puts them to sleep. No, this is freaking people out. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all of the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterwards, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. He said, you guys are going to listen to me, and then I'll cover my face up so you'll stop freaking out. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he commanded, the people would would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. When, When Moses came close to God, he was illuminated. And that was an illumination that, that he carried with him. When you, when you ask yourself, how, how is this supposed to work in my life? The best thing I can say to you is get close to God. I, 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 we don't ask you to read this Bible because I'm keeping track. I, I got too many other things to think about to know whether or not you've read your Bible today. That is not why I want you to get into this Bible. I want you to get a paper Bible so you're not distracted by Twitter or, or your email. I want you to read this Bible every day. I want you to get a reading plan so that you don't just say, oh, I don't know what to do today. Let's just, Daniel 8, okay, here we go. I want you to have a plan in place to get through this word because when we get close to God and we believe that God speaks through this word, when we get close to God, the light of God begins to dwell in us more fully. We've, we, we all, maybe not all of us, but many of us had, you had the, the stars that you put up in your room and you're like, i got to turn the lights on because when the, when the nighttime comes, these, light, these stars are going to be awesome. You turn the lights off and you're like, boom, stars in my room. This is great. And those stars had to be charged up. And you and I, we need to be charged up by getting close to God. Have you dug into the word and listened to God speak to you today? I say this to myself. There's a distinct difference between the days that I, I really get into the word and I listen to it and the days where I, I either forget to do it until later in the day, or I, um, I kind of go through the motions, but I don't allow it to penetrate my heart. Have you responded by obeying what he says, and have you, have you spoken to him in prayer? Right? Getting close to God is not just reading the Bible, but you can't do it without reading the Bible. Right? That's it, it, not enough. You got to get in this word and say, God, you call me to be holy. How do I be holy? You call me to be a good husband. How can I be a good husband? And then when it's like, well, you know, stop being a jerk, you're like, okay, I will try not to be a jerk. Jesus, help me not to be a jerk. You know, I, I, I'm supposed to be children. I'm supposed to be obedient to my parents. Are there any children? Yeah, children. You're supposed to be obedient to your parents, right? Okay, well, I'm going to try and be obedient to my parents. I'm going to listen, and when I fail, I'm going I'm to say I'm sorry, and I'm going to try again. Spouses, I'm going to be kind, you know, employees, I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to have integrity. 
people, I'm going to, I'm going to be gracious and, and generous, and I'm going to live like Jesus lives. We're going to read the word, then apply the word, do what the word says. And then secondly, I would say, have you kept your eyes on Jesus? Because here's the reality, you are going to fail. And what I don't want is for you to walk out of this room and say, okay, great, I've got a, I've got a list of, of, of to-dos that Pastor Eddie wants me to do, and I sure hope I succeed. The good news of the gospel is not, hey, you've gotten saved, so make sure you do things to keep your salvation. No, the good news of the gospel is, is that God loves you, and it's out of that love that we're able to do this. And we, we draw close to that when we look at Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says this. Um, he's talked about people who have been faithful, who, who are, are, are kind of watching our walk watching our lives, and he says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, of people who have, saints who have gone before us and lived lives of, of, of righteousness and have given us an example and, and are potentially in heaven watching us or maybe just by example uh, impressing upon us their lives, he says, because of this, this cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that, that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us. What? Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. This Christian life, this goal of, of shining your light is not going to work if you take your eyes off of Jesus. In the same way that Moses, he connected with God. He looked, it says that he talked to him face to face. Not sure what that looks like theologically, but that's what the Bible says. He looked at him, he spoke with him face to face. And he was illuminated. And in the same way, when we look at Jesus, when we consider his life, when we gaze into who he is through scripture, the Old Testament telling us about what he's going to be like, what, what uh, we need, the, the bad examples that, that show us that we need something better, the New Testament showing us who he is, giving us a testimony of what he did, and then reflecting upon the, the implications of what he did. When we look at this Bible and we say, okay, Jesus, I see you. I see that you're loving. I see that you're kind. I see that you're righteous. I see that you're just. Something about that begins to permeate our souls and our lives so that we become people who are light. When you think it's too hard to forgive, you think about Jesus. When you think it's, it's too hard to love, it's just too hard to love these people. You think about Jesus who's on the cross being murdered and looks down and he says, Father, forgive them, love them. When you think it's too hard to sacrifice, think of Jesus. Whatever you do, don't take your eyes off of Jesus. And as you set your eyes and your heart on Jesus, your life will begin to shine. As you set your heart and your life on Jesus, who is the light of the world, your, light will, your life will begin to shine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the light of your son, Jesus Christ, whose life Death and resurrection has, has shown in the world. It's enlightened our own hearts. And it now ministers to us by your spirit. Changes us and transforms us, as your word says, from glory to glory. God, I pray that you would make us clear and full reflections of your light. Among our relatives, our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends and enemies, God, let our lives, activities, our deeds be consistent with your gospel message. And God, I pray that our life source, the, the, the lives in this room, 
that we would be sources of attraction to your goodness and your greatness. Lord, not to us be the glory, but to your name be the glory because of your loving kindness and your faithfulness. Let that be our testimony like the psalmist. God, this week as we read your word, I pray that you by your spirit would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in that word. And as we go through a week, God, I pray that you would give us an awareness of the opportunities to do good for your glory. And as you give us awareness, God, I pray that you would give us boldness and confidence to pursue those opportunities. And above all, Jesus, be glorified in our lives. You are the Alpha and Omega. We worship you, our Lord. You are worthy to be praised. God, may people praise your name because of the deeds that we have done for your glory. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things. Open our eyes to see Jesus as worthy. Transform our hearts and change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.